Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the BTOG ESMO in an hour, BTOG 2020 ESMO in an hour. Um, I hope you're all ready to go and excited about the uh, agenda we have for you. Um, three distinguished guests, as you can see. Um, first of all, thank you to our sponsors. Uh, without, this, uh, without them, this would not be possible. So grateful to MSD and Pfizer for supporting us with this. And as ever, uh, thanks to the uh, universal presence of Dawn and Gina, who are the powerhouses uh, behind BTOG uh, and help us get these things organized. So next slide. There's a little bit of housekeeping before we kick off and you get to the main act, which is frankly more exciting than me rabbiting away. Um, we're really keen this is interactive. So if you can, think of a question and send it to me. I have my phone next to me, here it is. Um, and if you type in your question into the control panel, it will appear as if by magic. Uh, next to me and I can interrogate our, our panelists on your behalf and the feedback we've had so far is it's that Q&A which is really valuable so please uh, submit the questions uh, just just back up one if you could Richard I can't get back up one um, <laughs> there we go um, can we also uh, send us your feedback uh, there is a certificate of attendance which you will get but we're going to be mean and we're only going to give it to you if you send us the feedback but it's really worth it because you get your CPD accredited um, RCP uh, coded um, token. So please make sure that you do that. Right, so what have we got in order for you? We have divided ESMO into three broad areas. And ESMO essentially ran this weekend. And as you will know, it was a virtual meeting for various obvious reasons. Um, the main body of the data, uh, if you could go back up one, the main body of the data um, was on the weekend. Um, and it was yesterday, and we've divided it into three bits. We've got stage three disease, which is gonna be kicked off by David Gilligan. Uh, we're then gonna move on to the small cell lung cancer area, which Shobit Bajal is going to go through, and we're gonna finish uh, with the TKIs and other targeted therapies with James Spicer. And we're gonna have questions in each of those three bits afterwards, as you can see. So think of a question, and it'd be an honor and a pleasure to go through it with you. So without further ado, I will pass you on to David Gilligan. For those of you who don't know David, he's been a huge supporter of BTOG over the years. He's a clinical oncologist who's based at Addenbrooks and at Papworth, um, and he's going to go through the stage three disease, which I think really is one of the highlights um, of not only the lung cancer programme, but indeed the whole of ESMO. David, over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. It's a real pleasure to uh, feedback to all of you from ESMO, and I hope I can share with you uh, a few of the highlights that uh, I thought were really uh, important. Um, I'm going to cover uh, three main areas uh, in four uh, abstracts. Um, the first one is the, uh, the big ticket item, if you like, the long and keenly awaited results of the lung art study by Cecile Lipichot. Um, I'm going to mention a couple of neoadjuvant uh, studies which were done in of immunotherapy and resectable disease. And finally, just a quick uh, update on the Pacific study. Uh, the, uh, the menu is a rather uh, French, as you can see, but with also some very good comments from uh, uh, Raphael uh, Dododuska. Been practicing that all day and haven't quite managed to get on top of it. Anyway, here we go. So the first um, uh, abstract I want to talk to you about is the um, lung art study, which was a, uh, as most of you will know, an international trial 
comparing post-operative radiotherapy or port to no port in patients with completely resected non-small cell lung cancer and mediastinal N2 uh, disease involvement. And this uh, arose from uh, the port meta-analysis, which was published way back 22 years ago in The Lancet in 1988, but has been updated since uh, by the MRC meta-analysis group. And what that showed was very, very clearly that um, stage, stages of disease that were N0 or N1, there was no benefit at all. In fact, post-operative radi post radiotherapy was actually um, detrimental and should not be used and has not been used since then. Um, but in uh, disease which was N2 positive, the, um, the jury was out with the sort of hazard ratio hovering around one. And the important thing was that in these trials going back uh, to the 1960s, some of the radiotherapy used was, was positively um, Stone Age. So Lung Art was designed and run by uh, the French collaborative group, but with input from uh, UK, Swiss and other European groups. And basically patients who had completely resected disease, so are not resection, uh, with N2 involvement, and could have had and could have uh, neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy uh, were randomized to either a control group or conformal radiotherapy, 54 gray in usually 27 fractions. And you can see that the stratification factors are listed below. And the most important thing was that the primary endpoint was disease-free survival. And the hypothesis was that there would be a 42% disease-free survival in port uh, versus a 30% in the control arm at three years. And the secondary endpoints are mentioned there, including overall survival. Here is a summary slide of some of the patient characteristics in the lung art study. Um, nothing uh, very surprising at the beginning, the median age, 60, early 60s, um, the uh, sex uh, breakdown is what you might expect, as is the histology. And you can see that in both groups which are well balanced, neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy was given in virtually all cases, 96%. One um, statistic which I thought was quite interesting was that um, around about 40% of patients had unforeseen or unpredicted N2 disease, which is, I thought was quite interesting given that 90 to 92% of patients in the study had a PET CT scan. So I think this just shows the value that we now put on uh, mediastinal staging with EBIS or EUS. Uh, just over half the patients had more than one N2 disease positive and the pneumonectomy rate was just around 10%. This is the key slide, and um, sadly, perhaps the, the uh, results were, this was a negative study. The three-year uh, disease-free survival in the control arm was 43%, and in port it was 47%, so it did not meet the um, primary endpoint, and the hazard ratio was 0.85. And this, not surprisingly, um, translates to no difference in overall survival, and you can see in the Kaplan-Meier curves that the overall survival is almost superimposed. 
interestingly, you can see that three-year survivorship is in the 60 to 70% level, and also that um, five-year survival is around and just over 50%. So actually, the good news to take from this is that these patients were actually surviving longer. They all had, by definition, stage three disease. So that's really a very positive outlook for patients with stage three disease. I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, patterns of relapse and the radiotherapy details. On the left at the top are some of the uh, radiotherapy details of um, the, 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 the treatment given the, the heart dose and the lung dose, which I'm sure will be discussed. And looking at disease-free survival, you, uh, you can see that the um, in the control group, there was a high 46% rate of mediastinal relapse um, and only 25% in the poor group. But sadly, we can see that death as a first event in disease-free survival was much higher in the port group at 21, uh, sorry, at 14.6%. And the, the um, table or the chart on the, the right was um, provided by Dr. Dadushka, who I think this summarizes it very well in that um, port prevented progression and recurrence in about 19 patients, but port was possibly linked or responsible for the death in a number of patients due to cardiac or second primary cancers. So does this really mean that the future for adjuvant radiotherapy trials is over? And I think you, this will actually stimulate a lot of debate and uh, about where we're going. You could say that if we know that the excess deaths were all due to uh, cardiac toxicities, that by improving our radiotherapy uh, planning by specifically subdividing cardiac structures and, and, attack, and um, making sure that we avoid certain cardiac structures, not just the whole heart, but sub, um, but sub, uh, sub parts of the heart, and using collaborative outlining with our radiologists and our surgeons and our pathologists to actually work out exactly where we need to target the radiation. This may be, a, this may be in the direction of travel. Also, 89% um, of the cases in the lung art study used 3D conformal, only 11% were IMRT, and we are now using IMRT and VMAT solutions as part of that for many of our patients and find that there are, our um, dose distributions are much better. Obviously, protons and other radiotherapy developments are coming along and they may be important as well in protecting normal tissues. However, we can't get over the fact that the recruitment rate was poor. It, this study was powered originally to um, recruit 700 patients and it, in 2017, it was, um, uh, it was recalculated to 500 patients and it took 11 years to recruit those 500 patients. And the other factor is that in the last decade or so, we have newer modalities and there are newer modalities using new agents and immunotherapy, um, which may confound the uh, uh, doing further adjuvant trials. So I think the take home message is that PORT, as it stands at the moment, is not a standard of care in R0 PN2 uh, positive non-small cell lung cancer, but 
I think we should take the message that because there are up to 46% of mediastinal relapse in the control group, we should really close, closely follow these patients because there may be many salvage modalities that we can offer them. I'm going to touch very briefly on um, neoadjuvant immunotherapy in uh, stage three disease or operable disease, and two studies that were presented, the UNESCO and the PRESENT study. They are in some ways similar, in some ways quite different. You can see that both were looking at early stage disease and both gave single agent immunotherapy, the atezolizumab, just one cycle in the PRINCEPS trial and three cycles of Dovolumab in the other study. They also had high, high rates of R0 resection. What was really interesting, I think, was the correlation looking at um, pathological response or major pathological response, which is less than 10% of uh, viable tumor remaining, um, in, and looking at those in more detail. The figures you can see, 17.5% and 14% respectively, are perhaps at the lower end of what we've seen in previous studies. But I think the def definition of major pathological response has changed and refined and perhaps become more precise and improved. But interestingly, there was no correlation in both studies between radiographic or in the PRINCEP study, metabolic response. And they showed some really very clear slides of PET scans, which were uh, shining very bright and very hot after adjuvant immunotherapy, but when looked at histologically had a major pathological response. A difference was that the UNESCO study was stopped early because of a 9% 90-day mortality. And just looking at that maybe a little bit more detail, you can see that the trial was stopped early. Interestingly, only 14% of patients had stage three disease. So that means 86 were stage one and two. Three patients progressed before surgery and 20%, there's a 20% pneumonectomy rate, which seems to me to be very high. And I think this study needs to be looked at in more detail to see what are the issues around the surgical parts of the study. Whereas the PRISEMP study was perhaps more conventional with a third of patients with stage three disease and a 7% pneumonectomy rate. And then finally, uh, Corinne Favafin presented the Pacific study, the four year overall survival update. And you can see that that uh, separation of the curves is maintained. Median survival has just been reached. Um, median over survival is uh, 47.5 months, and the four-year survival is 49.6%. Um, and the benefits were seen through all subgroups. So that's some really good news at that study, which we're all has changed our practice, and we are um, continuing in that, that there is durable response out to four years uh, from the update. So that concludes my um, tour of stage three disease and non-small cell at ESMO and uh, look forward to any questions. Thank you. Thank you, David. You also win the prize for being within time. So you get a, you get, you get a golden apple for that. Well done. Um, we had lots of questions coming through, uh, which is fantastic. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, David for going through that. It's really quite onerous actually doing this. You essentially get an email from us about a month beforehand saying, would you mind presenting uh, this data from ESMO? And then you have to spend all weekend going through the abstracts whilst the rest of us are off enjoying the last of the sun. So it's a lot to do and we're very grateful for all of our panelists. I've got a question here for someone called Sanjay Popat. I'm not entirely sure who he is, but he's got a question for you, David. He's written down, um, Langart was a negative trial, 
post-lung art, are there any R0-resected N2 patients that should get post-operative radiotherapy? Or is this the end of radiotherapy for that group? Um, I think we have to, I mean, there are always exceptions and, you know, you can always find uh, very intricate reasons why you might want to. But I think broadly speaking, the answer is no. Clearly, if you have N1, uh, sorry, R1 disease or, or R2 disease, then you do need to consider treatment. And um, sometimes there are, certainly in the MDTs that I've been involved in, quite lively debates between the surgeons and the pathologist as to whether the resection that they've given the pathologist is R1 or R0 based on staple lines and things like that. So I think that will obviously continue. Um, and I think there is a, clearly a case for radiotherapy in uh, R1 uh, disease, where there is a microscopic uh, positive margin. And that needs to be, that's always a challenge from a clinical oncology, radiation oncologist point of view, because you do need to sit down with your surgeon, your radiologist and your pathologist to work out what the target volume is going to be. But to answer the question, broadly speaking, I'd say no, in R0 in two disease. Thank you. And, and in fact, you, you read my mind, which is extremely impressive, because another question is really you sort of answered, which is saying, would you recommend postoperative radiotherapy if there was extra nodal spread uh, and hence positive resection margin? I guess it's coming to a little bit what you were saying there, which is what does the R1 mean? And extra nodal yes. spread, we've tended to be quite worried about that addition, haven't we? Yes. And I mean, I think um, it's important to, to note that um, in the lung art study, patients with extra scapular spread were excluded. And I remember, um, uh, you know, going back to the fact that lung art was quite a difficult study to recruit to. We were in Cambridge, a centre, but uh, I think we struggled to find any patients to go into the study. And it was one of those studies where every patient we tried to um, uh, recruit or put into the study somehow found themselves in an, in a, an exclusion criteria. And I remember extra capsular spread was one of them. Um, so I think for extra capsular spread, then there is a case. Uh, we have a question from uh, Corinne uh, Favrafin, so mentioned uh, in dispatches. Uh, first mm -hmm. thing she said is lung, lung art is not a negative study. Um, it's a practice changing study. I think that's absolutely right. That will help us inform our, our patients about optimal care. Um, but her question um, is overall survival in both arms of lung art is excellent and compared very favorably with that of the Pacific study. Does this mean the question of surgery versus concurrent chemoradiotherapy is still topical? Are we, are we still going to go back to that familiar argument, David? Well, firstly, um, to Corinne, um, I, I absolutely agree. I, I suppose the word negative has negative connotations and uh, it, it is, it's, it's not a... Uh, it's, we, I agree that we should be um, talking in terms of practice changing. Um, as was, as I said, the results um, in both arms were exceptionally good. And I think that all I can say is that I think the debate will continue about uh, the optimum management of stage three disease. Now, there clearly are cases where um, disease is inoperable and surgeons would not want to uh, attempt a resection. There are cases where maybe, you know, certainly single station N2 disease where, uh, and no evidence of say, mediastinal invasion where surgery 
should be considered uh, as um, the, perhaps the main modality or certainly uh, an, old, uh, an equivalent modality in, in stage three disease. So I think there will still be the inoperable and operable, but there will also be a, a gray area in between where we will uh, in MDTs enthusiastically debate, but, but, but most importantly, I think, and this sometimes comes out in our, in our clinics, is that we have a discussion with patients about what they want and what they are prepared to accept. Because it's important to say that, you know, if someone has a resection and by and large in the UK, we're giving um, adjuvant chemotherapy that patients, uh, not, not neoadjuvant, that patients will have to have a discussion about whether or not they're gonna have adjuvant chemotherapy. And then we get into that debate about the um, small benefit in adjuvant chemotherapy. So um, I think all of those things have to be considered and that in, in someone being operable, it does mean, yes, may, they may be operable, but then we're, we're talking about combining post-operative chemotherapy with that as well. It, and in fact, it, it chimes in with a question someone came through, which, which is very much about that, saying, you know, given the five-year overall survival seen with lung art and no post-operative radiotherapy, how do you frame adjuvant chemotherapy in that setting? I think it's a really good point. Um, you begin to wonder quite whether that, that benefit from chemotherapy is worth it. I've got another question coming through. We've got lots of these. This is very exciting. Um, thinking a little bit about the neoadjuvant studies you touched upon, the, the DERVA and the, the ATIZO studies, they talk about an, an MPR, a major pathological response rate of somewhere between 14 and 17%. Um, what, what would we expect to get with just standard chemo? Are, are we seeing a, a genuine immuno effect here? Um, or is this just an adjuvant therapy and should we just be giving them chemo instead? Yeah, um, well, it's a, it's a good question and um, you're, you're, you're challenging my memory banks to remember for studies like that I've been involved in with LU22, what the um, pathological CR rate, I, from memory, I think it was certainly much lower single figure percentages. So I think there is probably something going on there. Um, thank you very much. Uh, we've got a couple of looking at my little clock to make sure we don't go over. No, we're looking very well. Um, so um, question here from, from Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous. Uh, should we consider post-operative CT scans to confirm complete N2 resection? How useful that's going to be? I mean, when someone has taken all the nodes out, do we expect to see an empty mediastinum or would we still see some reactive nodes because you can't in reality Get everything out despite your best intentions i appreciate well, that, you're not really, certain that's a really good question and i think that's an area that we need to look at more and more because um the the post-operative mediastinum i think is something which we all need to know a little bit more about and i'd be very interested to have a you know a, a, a discussion with the radiologists about what the benefits are what modalities should we use um, given what we said about looking for mediastinal recurrence, I, I always feel that a baseline scan is a good thing to have. And the whole follow-up question in lung cancer is a very difficult one, but we should probably be stratifying it with various factors, including nodal, nodal disease. We've also seen um, some nodes come up and they, we biopsied them and they've had surgical, surgical material in them and, and they look big, but they're not, um, they're not pathological. So I think that imaging the um, CT scan, imaging probably by CT, because I think anything else 
practically in the UK as things stand at the moment would be difficult. But imaging by CT, um, we, we probably have to have better protocols in, in following patients up. Thank you very much, David. Um, so we're going to move on. I'm a little bit worried about my internet connection. So if I start freezing, many apologies. We're going to move on to uh, Shobit and we're going to move on to uh, small cell lung cancer. Uh, so Shobit is a medical oncologist um, up in sunny Birmingham. Um, small cell has traditionally been a little bit neglected in um, lung cancer presentations, but of course hit the highlights with chemoimmunotherapy around two years ago. And Shobit's going to kindly update us on the new developments from this SMO. Thank you, Shobit. Thank you, Tom. Um, and welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. So I've been tasked with uh, updating you on the uh, small cell data. Um, without doing any spoiler alerts, uh, it probably wasn't the most practice changing um, of ESMOs for the small cell landscape. But still, I think some important studies um, that probably help us understand the disease uh, process better and probably give some idea of future directions. So I'm going to start off with limited stage and then move on to extensive stage. So the main um, headline I'd say from uh, the limited stage study was presented by Solange Peters and this was the stimuli trial. This was lo um, looking at consolidation dual checkpoint inhibition with nivolumab and ipilimumab versus observation in patients with limited stage small cell lung cancer that had completed concurrent chemo radiotherapy. We look at the trial design, so uh, legibility, limited stage, good performance status and adequate lung function. Uh, patients uh, were allowed one cycle of chemotherapy before trial enrollment, and then they moved on to concurrent chemo radiotherapy with either cis or carbohydrate, completing four cycles uh, with PCI to follow. Uh, patients were stratified as to whether they had twice daily or once daily radiotherapy. And it was at this point that they were randomized to receive either the experimental arm with nivolumab, induction nivolumab, and I'd say an eye-watering dose of ipilimumab, three milligrams per kilogram, and then moving on to maintenance nivolumab uh, versus observation, with the primary endpoint being progression-free survival. If we look at the uh, patient disposition, I think this might give a, a heads up in terms of where the uh, clinical outcomes heading for this trial. So the first thing to note is that even for a, a clinical trial where you've got pre-selected patients, there was a very high attrition rate for patients either not completing or progressing on the concurrent chemo radiotherapy. So although 222 uh, patients were initially enrolled, 35% um, of these were not randomized. For those that were randomized, um, as you can see, in the experimental arm, only eight patients completed their treatment. And in fact, there's about an 80% uh, treatment failure rate. Uh, and this was mainly driven by drug toxicity. In terms of the observation arm, uh, less than 50% of patients completed uh, treatment visits. And, and expectedly, this was driven mainly by disease progression. Based on that, I think it comes as no surprise that in terms of the primary endpoint for this study, uh, this was a negative trial, median PFS 10.7 months for the experimental arm compared to 14.5 months for observation, um, giving a hazard ratio of 1.02. Uh, also worth noting that the median time to discontinuation in the experimental arm of treatment was 1.7 months. Uh, so really a tough regime for patients to tolerate. 
Uh, again, and uh, as expected, based on the PFS, the overall survival uh, was not in favour of the experimental arm. Uh, but worth noting that the curve does cross at kind of the two-year mark, giving a hint of some long-term, uh, uh, some patients that are getting some long-term benefit from IO exposure. Adverse events, uh, so more than 50% grade three to five adverse events in the experimental arm. And again, a lot of these patients not able to continue treatment, which probably does drove the uh, clinical outcomes for this study. So stimuli negative trial, uh, mainly driven by treatment discontinuation. There are a subgroup of long-term survivors and clearly um, a better understanding of the biomarkers um, that's driving their benefit would be um, useful. Um, although a negative study, I think this is an area still of ongoing interest and ongoing studies. So uh, hopefully in the near future, we will have something that mimics what we are achieving with the Pacific trial in the non-small cell cohort. So moving on to extensive stage. Uh, now, the first thing I'm going to talk about is the uh, EORTC 1417 trial reaction study. This was a phase two study. Uh, sounds familiar based on what we know from Impal 133 and Caspian, study looking at pembrolizumab in combination with platinum metoposide chemotherapy for patients with untreated extensive stage small cell lung cancer. If we look at the study design, there is a subtle twist in this trial. So patients had two cycles of induction chemotherapy uh, to begin with, either cis or carbo, platin, uh, cis or carbo plus etoposide, and only those patients that responded to treatment were then randomized uh, within the study. So really pre-selecting chemosensitive patients to see if this could potentially drive a better uh, clinical outcomes. Patients were randomized to receive then four cycles of either chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab, or uh, followed by maintenance pembrolizumab or chemotherapy four cycles alone. PCI was optional, but no, there was a crossover option for patients. So those patients that uh, did progress after three months of chemo exposure could then cross over to the experimental arm. And about 30% of patients in the study did cross over. Um, in terms of adverse events, there was no real uh, concerning safety signals. But if we go to the primary endpoint of progression-free survival, uh, as we can see, unfortunately, again, this is a negative trial, uh, median PFS of 4.7 months uh, for the experimental arm compared with 5.4 months for the standard of care arm. But if we look at overall survival, uh, this was actually positive with a hazard ratio of 0 0.73. Uh, despite the p-value, this was based on the predefined statistical uh, parameters. So uh, theme of small cell, I'm afraid, another negative trial, this time a study looking at pre-selecting chemosensitive patients to see whether they would get an uh, increased benefit from IO chemo exposure. Although there were no safety signals, the primary endpoint was sadly not met, although there was an improved overall survival despite the relatively high crossover rate. So in conclusion, what we can say is that chemosensitive small cell lung cancer behaves similarly independent of the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy. Um, and the last uh, two studies, which I've combined together because they really are looking at the same aspects. So these are studies that we're, we're pretty familiar with. So Caspian and Impal 133. So these are the, the studies that really established um, chemo IO uh, within the extensive stage small landscape. 
Um, so just a quick reminder of both studies. So in, uh, very similar designs if we exclude the Derva tremi arm in the Caspian study. So uh, looking at either Atezo carbotopside versus carbotopside um, in the Impal 133 study and substituting the, uh, the atezolizumab with Derva in the Caspian study. Some subtle differences in that Caspian was unblinded. Uh, there was a choice of cisplatin or carboplatin um, and PCI was excluded. Overall survival was the primary endpoint in both studies uh, and both studies were positive. But if we focus initially on the Caspian study, so we've got PFS and OS, both positive for this study. But if we uh, dig a bit deeper in what we can see is that the, the lines, the curves actually stay together until probably the chemotherapy component component um, has completed. And it's that point in time that we see the divergence in the curves, giving a suggestion, suggestion that um, it's, there's uh, some long-term benefits from immunotherapy exposure. So there's an exploratory analysis to look at two factors. One is biomarker analysis to see whether tissue TMB uh, could correlate with outcomes for the long-term uh, benefits and also clinical characteristics of these patients that are getting long-term benefit. And they define long-term benefit as anyone who had a PFS of greater than 12 months. Um, and what we do know is that in terms of PFS greater than 12 months, patients who received IO plus chemo had an almost three times greater chance of being a long-term long benefit compared with chemotherapy alone. Looking at uh, tissue uh, TMB, um, looking at several different cutoffs, if we look at the forest plot from um, less than eight to greater than 14 in terms of mutation megabases, what we see is that there was no correlation uh, in terms of the hazard ratios for overall survival regardless of the treatment arm based on TMB, really telling us that for this group or this population, uh, tissue TMB is not serving as a useful biomarker. In terms of clinical characteristics, uh, again, no real um, uh, news headlines here. Uh, understandably, patients with poorer prognostic features do less well. Uh, but it's interesting to see that uh, there are patients with the poor prognostic uh, factors that benefit from treatment with the chemo-IO combination. Uh, moving on to the IMPAL 133. So we're seeing a very similar pattern in terms of the curves, that, that late divergence once the chemotherapy completes. And again, an exploratory analysis into those into what they define as the long-term survivors, i.e. patients who live more than 18 months from randomization. Uh, and if we look at patient characteristics and disease characteristics, disease characteristics being the poor prognostic markers, uh, what we can see is that patients derive greater benefit or there's more long-term survivors for all parameters for those patients that had atezolizumab plus chemotherapy. But when we look again back at um, biomarkers, this time um, the, the group looked at blood TMB and PDL1. Uh, there is no correlation with high, P, high TMB or PDL1 positivity and chance of being a long-term survivor. So again, uh, not serving as useful biomarkers. So in conclusion, um, as is well established, platinum topsoside plus IO uh, provides meaningful survival benefit for our small cell, uh, advanced small cell lung cancer patients. Um, and we do have long-term survivors in these, in, these, um, in these groups of patients. Uh, patients seem to benefit regardless of patient or disease characteristics, but what we still are lacking is a useful predictive biomarker. So 
In terms of small cell, in a nutshell, ESMO 2020, no real practice changing data. Limited stage small cell uh, remains, uh, remains a high unmet need, but other trials underway in this landscape. Uh, in terms of extensive stage small cell lung cancer, we do now, we do now have a uh, standard of care with chemo IO uh, with long-term survivors, but a better understanding of biomarkers that may uh, identify patients that will derive the greater benefit would, would help uh, in future algorithms. Thank you. Thank you, Shabit. That's brilliant. Um, and you're also to time, so you also get a golden apple. Well done. Um, so we've got there's so many questions coming through. It's terribly exciting. Um, one question I've got, which I can go for first because I'm holding the controller, is looking at that EORTC study described as a bit disappointing. That's the, the Pembroke one, obviously. Um, the median overall survival, uh, I believe, 12.3 versus 10.4 months described as a negative study. And yet in Power 133, which made the presidential act at World Lung in Toronto 2018, median overall survival 12.3 versus 10.3 months. So the exact same thing. And yet one is seen as groundbreaking and one is seen as a bit of a disappointment. Is that just um, a fluke of design? Are we being, uh, why are we less excited about this? Is it because it's a bit of a me too study? Um, yeah, I think, there is an element of trial design, and if we look at the keynote, I think it's is it 604, the Pembro chemo one, which was again only just negative, uh, despite Caspian and um, Impact 133 being positive. I think there is an element of trial design, but I think also um, what we're seeing here, for me anyway, is that you know the, the key is we're not, and this comes out from the prognostic markers that we saw in the other two studies, is that it, the key thing is that there are patients who respond regardless of factors. So pre-selecting chemo sensitivity doesn't seem to change the paradigm. Absolutely. Um, thank you. We've got a question from uh, Clive Pidal, um, and this kind of reflects my thought of your excellent description, um, show a bit of eye-watering doses of immunotherapy. And his question was, in stimuli, uh, is there a fundamental design flaw in that study? The discontinuation rate was really very high. I think he's got a really good point there. Do you think this should be done differently? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that was an issue and uh, listening to the, the talks and discussions, I think it was really driven by the early Checkmate 032 study where it seemed as though that dose was tolerable uh, for the extensive stage population. Uh, but I think it is a, a learning curve. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of melanoma doses. We don't touch our non-small cell lung cancer patients with it. And we, we you know, instinctively feel our small cell population are a poorer group. And they're already having a tough treatment with the chemo rad, so then moving on to that. So, I, as, as I said, I don't think this is a done deal for IO in the limited stage um, landscape. I think uh, looking at drugs, looking at doses, um, looking at timing, bringing in the IO, I think these are all paradigms that will hopefully read out in the future. Uh, but yeah, I think that that was for me, and, and I'm sure, you know, everyone else feels the same in hindsight, I think that that IPI dose was, was um, questionable. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? If anyone was part of those studies, I know quite a few people in the audience were, do, do let me know your experiences. Um, Clive also asks, um, where does consolidation thoracic irradiation now fit uh, with patients with extensive stage small cell getting chemo IO? Um, do, do you do that routinely uh, with your Empower 133 regimen patients? Do you offer them thoracic radiotherapy if they've got bulky disease or does that now put you off? 
Um, I mean, the, the, so within this study, I mean, obviously, based on the, the doses of the uh, IP, if we don't factor for that, the pneumonitis rate was 9%, so quite high. Um, personally, I don't. Um, that's, uh, I don't offer the, the thoracic. I haven't yet anyway. Um, but I think without the data, without the safety data, which I think that's key, um, I would feel hesitant to do it. And, you know, as I said, we've talked about the doses of the immunotherapy used here. So, uh, and potentially different doses may be more tolerable, but I think without that, um, without that reassurance, I'd feel uncomfortable doing it. Thank you. And uh, last question before we, we move on is from Sanjay, which is uh, given that stimuli was negative, uh, what do you think will happen in Adriatic? And just remind the audience, uh, Adriatic is limited stage small cell uh, with consolidation DERVA uh, or DERVA tremolimumab. Um, any, any uh, gazing into a crystal ball, what, what do you reckon, Shay? But are you excited about Adriatic or is it going to be um, a little disappointing? I'd like, I mean, I guess it all, as I said, I think for me, I think the driver here is is the dose. Well, personally, I think it is the dosing that was used, and it's a, rather than the the concept. Um, you know, we've, we've seen from Pacific, and we know that radiotherapy, see, you know, release, it makes uh, or, or stimulates the, the response to immunotherapy agents. So um, whether combination pdl1 ctla4 is too much for our small cell population uh, i think we'll have to wait and see uh, but we will have the derva arm as well in that study to so yeah i, I i'm excited I, I don't think it's a done deal yet thank you uh, so i think we're going to move on just one last comment from someone who was uh, from sanjay who was one of the co-authors on stimuli saying when it was designed we didn't know the optimal niv ipi uh, schedule at the time which kind of makes sense. And I think as we've gone along, we've worked out the, the relative uh, toxicities of the two potential doses. Okay, so uh, Shovit, thank you very much. That was fantastic. Um, last and very much not least is uh, Professor James Spicer. James is a, is a professor of experimental cancer medicine at King's, and he's also a medical oncologist at uh, Guy's and Tommy's. And he's gonna uh, round up the uh, targeted therapies part of ESMO. And that really was one of the fortes. And uh, James, uh, thank you very much for contributing. Thanks, Tom. Um, that's, a, that's a nice introduction. Richard, if you could just allow me to share my screen. So um, I'm going to talk about some targets, none of which are particularly exotic, um, although some of the therapies that I'll mention are, are relatively new. Um, and uh, uh, I, I suppose uh, I take on board the distinction that Corinne um, drew, drew our attention to, the distinction between a, a, a negative trial and perhaps a, 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 a less pejorative word, an informative trial. Um, uh, some of these trials were both informative and positive and potentially practice changing, at least in the future. And uh, two of them were supported by uh, contemporaneous publications in the New England Journal to reflect that impact. So we'll come to those. So the first, um, uh, I, I, well, actually, uh, the, the four genes that I've highlighted in that first slide, you, you can, I've just put in this very familiar pie chart to remind us all that um, between them, they account for not unadjacent to half of all non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancers. So uh, we're, we're talking about, in aggregate, quite a lot of our patients here. Um, I'm going to focus first of all on EGFR, 
uh, and um, assuming no prior knowledge, uh, I'll just rehearse some of uh, what we've got very used to doing over, well, getting on for two decades now in the first line setting with the earlier generation drugs we treat to progression and then uh, we go looking for a resistance mutation and if we find it in tissue or blood, uh, we have a relatively new drug to use in that context and in the first um, uh, a phase one study of that trial, impressive efficacy was seen and that was supported in uh, the Aura 3 randomized trial with impressive progression-free survival benefit and uh, clear su uh, superiority uh, toxicity-wise, and that uh, has become a standard of care for us. Um, if a drug works in the second-line setting, then usually the next thing to do is to see whether it works in the first-line setting, and that was the background behind Flora, you'll all recall, uh, again with an impressive hazard, hazard ratio uh, for progression-free survival. Uh, and an overall survival benefit as well, as we saw in the um, uh, New England Journal publication for Flora earlier this year. And so, uh, according to, to um, uh, 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 national guidelines, um, uh, in many parts of the world, first line osimertinib is a standard of care. Uh, and actually, um, one of the uh, uh, div positive dividends of COVID has been the NHS uh, sort of sacked prioritization access, which gives us first line. Uh, osimertinib in the NHS at the moment. So um, that's, if you like, our current standard of care. One of the discussants at this ESMO over the weekend, Leisha Sequist, used this very useful slide, I think, to rein in what's become rather a menagerie of um, uh, uh, EGFR inhibitor plus studies, uh, which are, I find personally quite difficult to get my head around. Yet another of these was presented at this meeting, and that's the one on the bottom of my slide here, that's adding apatinib, um, a one of the VEGF TKIs to gefitinib. Uh, and the way this slide works is that the control arms for each study are in gray. Uh, a green um, um, a VEGF targeting uh, a strategy um, uh, uh, is shown, and then yellow is a chemotherapy combination. So, and right at the top is flora, the osimertinib um, uh, PFS outcomes. So. Uh, for for these studies, I think we can, in aggregate, discuss them in this way. PFS uh, benefit is present in most of these studies, although quite sm small randomized trials in some cases. The uh, uh, toxicity of the combinations is, is always su uh, um, uh, uh, in excess of that of these single agent TKI. And in the absence of an overall survival benefit, which we only have for the flora study, uh, First-line single-agent osimertinib clearly remains the standard of care in advanced EGFR-driven cancers. So, um, uh, as I say, if a, a drug works in the second-line setting, test it, test it in the first line, and if it works there, what about adjuvant? Um, so we've heard about some adjuvant studies in other settings already in this meeting. Um, the ADJURA trial was added to at this ESMO, uh, so to bring everyone up to speed with Adjura, as if you weren't already, uh, this was a very simple study design in stage, uh, actually the recruitment was in stage 1B to 3A patients, although the primary uh, outcome was an analysis in only stage 2 to 3A. Uh, that, that was just osimertinib or placebo added to the, whatever patients were getting anyway, uh, adjuvant chemotherapy-wise. And the PFS benefit was pretty stonking, um, particularly in the more advanced stage. And we have an overall survival benefit, which was presented earlier on this year with an um, impressive hazard ratio, although admittedly still immature data. Uh, and, then, and that um, 
OS data is included in the uh, uh, this week's New England Journal uh, publication, um, together with what was newly presented at this meeting, which was CNS disease recurrence in EGFR positive resected patients. Uh, and uh, cutting to the chase for the result from um, uh, this particular aspect of the Adura study, you can see here yellow for a placebo. There were more uh, uh, disease recurrence events, uh, uh, of course, in that arm. Uh, and, and in particular, the distinction between placebo and osimertinib was uh, was was um, highlighted in the in the CNS site, uh, with ten times more events. Admittedly, very small numbers, um, and the small numbers because again, this is a quite an immature uh, um, analysis. But here's the CNS disease-free survival, um, an impressive hazard ratio, uh, and this exactly these uh, these data appear in the New England Journal as well. I think the take-home message is that, you know, we may have to wait a little while for access in the NHS for this context, but for particularly the more advanced um, uh, resected stages of EGFR-driven cancers, we need to be considering this drug. And so uh, as a first step, we need to be ensuring that our, our um, MDTs are configured such that we can actually get an EGFR mutation status in resected patients, because of course that uh, uh, has been an uh, a test without an indication until now. Uh, sticking with EGFR and move, segueing into HER2, uh, if you're a, a phase three jockey, and uh, this is feeling a bit esoteric now, small studies of newer drugs um, might be a good moment to check your emails, but keep an ear open because I think we're gonna be hearing more about some of these approaches. For what already is a, a bit of an unmet need, we do um, periodically come across these patients with, for example, uh, atypical EGFR mutations, um, the most common of which are in exon 20, and, and most of those are insertions. Uh, and the discussant here, if you want to come back and peruse this um, webcast at your leisure, uh, you might want to pause here and look at her quite nice mechanistic explanation of why exon 20 mutations both activate the, the gene and, and render it rather um, um, inaccessible to, uh, to the conventional EGFR inhibitors. And those conventional drugs are pretty useless in, in EGFR exon 20 insertions, as we found out to our cost in a number of series, and um, in some contexts, trying these drugs where we can get access for these patients when we identify them. Very low response rates. Um, but this drug, um, updated at this ESMO, um, may be a, a way forward and looks really pretty impressive from an activity perspective. Mobocertinib in exon 20 insertions um, uh, a reasonable handful of patients here with a response rate approaching 50%. And you can see on the right in the swimmer's plot that actually a lot of these responses are quite sustained out beyond 20 plus months. So that's a, that's a drug to watch for the future in this indication. Uh, as I said, I was going to segue into HER2 mutations. Uh, actually, those are almost all exon 20 insertions as well, so a very parallel story. Uh, and a lot of these drugs, which are already uh, uh, approved in some indications, are said to be pan-HER inhibitors. But as you can see, again, um, historical data from small studies here, not very active um, in, uh, in this particular mutation subset. So um, Mark Sochinsky presented an update on this multi-cohort study. On, starting on the left, he'd already uh, presented at this ASCO, this year's ASCO, uh, the, the activity of this drug in um, this EGFR exon 20 population. Uh, and it's a 
bit unimpressive, um, a, a measurable but um, a modest response rate. Uh, uh, presentation this weekend was focusing on what they called cohort two, which was her two exon 20 insertions. And uh, uh, it looks like we have a, a, a small molecule that may be uh, associated with some sort of respectable level of activity here on the left in the waterfall plot. Toxicity, you, know, you, you can probably get a flavor from the numbers on the right, is a bit more of a concern though. A lot of dose reductions and, and interruptions for toxicity and some uh, are really too much in the way of grade three um, uh, toxicities, nasty ones as well, diarrhea and mucositis. So it, uh, this drug may, may need some tinkering in particular with its starting dose. Um, one more for your collection if you like new drugs. Uh, her to, her to uh, Exxon 20 in, inhibitor, um, Tarloxitinib, uh, not very active in EGFR Exxon 20, looking promising in a tiny study of uh, HER2 Exxon 20. Um, again, this may be something for you to return to at your leisure if you're interested. Uh, I couldn't really move on from this area uh, without mentioning some ADCs, although there wasn't a whole lot of talk about these at this ESMO. So antibody uh, um, drug conjugates, this is using an antibody to deliver a payload. Um, some of these are pretty familiar drugs in other contexts like TDM1 and uh, TDXD or Trastuzumab Deruxtican, which I'm still learning to say, but I know the breast oncologists know quite well. So this destiny lung trial was presented at, the, at this year's ASCO and looks look pretty impressive in patients, so lung cancer patients with HER2 mutations. So I think we're going to have a way of targeting these patients um, uh, uh, before too long. Uh, uh, if you're in, into phase three trials, now's the time to tune back in. I want to focus now on ALK, which again is a pretty familiar target, but uh, we're continuing to add to our armamentarium of drugs which are active in this area. A quick survey uh, of the drugs we're already more familiar with, a couple of drugs, crizotinib and seritinib, where the pivotal trials were compared with standard of care chemotherapy in ALK-driven patients. And then the ALEX and ALTA-1 trials respectively tested electinib and brigatinib versus what had by then become the standard of care crizotinib in, the, in this group. Um, very equivalent hazard ratios in both cases around 0.5. Uh, and at this ESMO, we have uh, yet another um, uh, drug tested against the, the punch bag, which is now crizotinib, um, lorlatinib, which is a drug which was dually designed to hit some of the common resistance mutations and to penetrate the CNS. Uh, and actually, uh, fully a quarter of patients included in this uh, randomized trial had CNS disease at, um, at enrollment. Uh, and here's the primary outcome, um, PFS, uh, a, a very nice uh, hazard ratio, um, despite uh, you know, an active ALK inhibitor as a control arm. Uh, response rates uh, um, in excess of 70% for the experimental arm. PFS performance nine months exactly as expected for crizotinib and not reached um, for, for lorlatinib. And in, in the brain, um, patients with, uh, with brain metastases uh, not only enjoy the, at least the same number, uh, same degree of benefit, they, they possibly benefit even more numerically than patients without, without brain mets. The um, tornado plot, um, we're learning to call these things, uh, a way of expressing the toxicities, 
looks a bit weighted against lorlatinib, but if you focus in on the um, um, uh, on on the toxicities of lorlatinib, a lot of those are very uh, are very treatable um, uh, and really not symptomatic from the patient's point of view. Right at the top, particularly hyperlipidemia, we need to remember to look for that with this drug. And of course, it's eminently treatable, uh, and uh, cognitive effects uh, pretty well managed with dose reduction. Uh, and this drug is not associated with nearly the same amount of uh, diarrhea and fatigue uh, and nausea that we see with CRIS. Patient reported outcomes clearly superior for the newer drug. So what, what do we do with all this information and all these new drugs in ALK inhibition? Uh, which is the first choice drug? Well, uh, there are a number of factors to consider. Um, uh, maybe the CNS uh, disease present or absent is, is a factor. Uh, we don't really know whether the ALK translocation partner matters about choosing which drug. Uh, Long-term tolerability is key, and I've just alluded to that. Um, are we ever going to see a lorlatinib head-to-head with a lectinib? Um, that, that would answer a number of questions, wouldn't it, but may, may never happen. Uh, and there are other drugs beside lorlatinib which are active in the brain, um, uh, some more than others, uh, as I've illustrated here on the right. Uh, Tom, I'm, I'm aware that it's nearly your supper time, so I'm going to wind up, wind up two more slides. I think it's important to measure, uh, mention this target in lung cancer, KRAS. We're terribly familiar with it. Uh, it drives a quarter of um, non-squamous lung cancers. Uh, mostly it's the G12C mutation. Um, and uh, you may remember this is a tough drug to drug because it's not a kinase. It's a lip, uh, it's a, um, it's a GTP protein acting here on the left downstream of many growth factors. Uh, but this particular mutation, the cysteine residue shown in, in yellow, uh, is, is a molecular target for covalent inhibition. Uh, and that's the way that this AMG 510, a new, uh, a new drug first rolled out at ASCO 2019 to great fanfare, um, now has a generic name, Sotoracib. Uh, and uh, this, my last data slide, it is um, the updated waterfall plot that was presented at ESMO. And you can see it looks it looks pretty impressive. This drug, for sure, is looking is adding up to being quite safe. No DLTs, very few grade three toxicities, response rate of thirty two percent, and actually quite deep responses, even at some of the lower doses. So this is segueing straight into a phase three trial versus docetaxel, and there's a another drug from Marathi, which is also in the phase three space, both both um, first line as well as second line, uh, and this this drug. Um, uh, had its moment in the sun this week as well in in New England Journal. So I'll stop there. I hope I've left a few microseconds for questions, um, and um, I haven't frightened you too much with uh, exotic genes. But I think we've got some uh, new ways of using old drugs, and we've potentially got some uh, pretty impactful new drugs coming down the track. James, thank you very much. Um, we'll, we'll forgive you your, your transgression in, in, into my supper time. I'll make sure Mr. Newsom Davis forgives you. Um, so I'm just gonna borrow two or three more minutes of the audience's time. I'm sure they won't mind because quite a few questions have come through. Um, one question um, is about the CNS protection um, it, with ozimertinib in the adjuvant setting. And obviously um, we know the value of CNS protection, but we're also in a situation where ozimertinib um, adjuvantly does not have an overall survival benefit. It does have a disease-free survival benefit, but not an overall survival benefit. Do you think that the CNS protection is now enough for you to start dishing it out to EGFR-mutated patients after surgery, 
or do you need more? Well, I think we're beginning to see signs of, uh, of early signs of, of OS benefit and um, uh, the, 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 um, the you know, CNS protection is, is an important part of, of progression-free survival. We've always bought into that as lung oncologists, haven't we? Um, and a lot of drugs now in our disease, as well as others in solid tumor oncology, are improve, approved on the back of PFS benefit in lung cancer. We certainly know that progression uh, um, radiologically equals progression symptomatically, and that's um, true par excellence in the brain. So I, I, I think you make the case uh, as well as I could. Um, a couple of similar questions on the same theme. The idea being really um, with the lorlatinib data, do we need another first line out TKI? Um, is would this be your first choice, lorlatinib, or would you be keeping it up your sleeve? For the relapse setting, which let's face it, is going to be more of a challenge for us going forwards. Well, it's always an issue in in uh, an expanding class of drugs, isn't it? Do you do you go with what you, you think is the most potent uh, drug early, or do you keep it in the drawer for later? Uh, I think, as a rule of thumb, it's uh, uh, often advisable to use the best treatment you have first. That very obviously begs the question: well, which is the best drug? And I think I very carefully hedge my bets in on on, on that score during my presentation. Um, and uh, to an extent, uh, there are horses for courses. If you've got a very, we know in in outdriven disease, brain uh, brain metastases are, are very common, and if they're not present at presentation, they're soon going to be. So I think we have to pay attention very much to the drugs which are more penetrant of the CNS. Uh, and I think um, my prediction is that with time those drugs will be used more and others that are less active in that part of the anatomy are less, uh, are less penetrant, both into the market and into the brain. Thank you. I've uh, got a question from Joe Evans, a question and statement. Uh, is the diarrhea aspect of Exxon 20, EGFR and HER23 TKIs surmountable with bunesonide or similar? And the reason she says that is she's thinking of the parallels with neratinib in breast cancer, um, similar grade three diarrhea, uh, without curb minister steroids. Do you, do you know anything about that, James? Do you know if steroids are helpful in that class of drugs? Because certainly the mucocutaneous side effects are quite problematic, aren't they? Yeah, I'm, pr I'm pretty certain that there isn't any data on that yet. Yet, I mean, these are still quite early non-randomized case series of drugs which are new in the clinic. Um, uh, I, I guess uh, as a phase one trialist, I'm, I, I'm as guilty as most. Quite often we're, we're rather paradoxically reluctant to, to wade in with a whole lot of um, primary prophylaxis for, for something that we think is going to be a significant toxicity because we just want to describe what that toxicity is, first of all. I hope that doesn't sound uh, too callous. Uh, certainly not. That's not our intention. Uh, but you, uh, you, un you understand uh, you know, what, what I'm saying about the evolution of a drug. First of all, we have, to, we have to know our enemy and describe carefully the toxicity profile, and then we see what we can do, do to mitigate it. But, um, you know, that, that learning from another environment is, um, is, is an obvious shortcut. Brilliant. James, thank you very much. I think we will wrap up there. I'm just going to say two more things, one of which is one person has mentioned, it said it's worth mentioning that first-line osimertinib is now here to stay. That's absolutely true. It's now NICE approved. So uh, if that tickles your fancy, then first-line Aussie is here. And Corinne mentioned at the beginning, which I forgot to say, which is that the Pioneer study, it's about the stage three patients, is comparing non-surgical to surgical approach of stage three disease and is due to start recruiting in the UK uh, next month.
So uh, without, uh, with that all done, I'm going to thank uh, my three excellent speakers. Thank you so much for taking the time to prepare all this at very short notice. Uh, it's fantastic. I'd like to uh, thank the uh, usual BTOG stalwarts, uh, Dawn and Gina, uh, and our IT colleagues uh, back of house for organising this. I'd like to thank you, the audience, being part of it. Please fill out your uh, evaluation forms, otherwise you won't get any prizes or indeed CPD points. Uh, there are other... Um, uh, webinars coming up on a sort of monthly basis. Um, they've proved to be extremely popular. So keep your eye out for the emails, pass them on to your friends um, and have a lovely evening. Good night.